Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, and alongside me, as always, is Paul Gillieri. Paul, here we are, episode five of five of 10 month. We are shutting her down with the way that the band often shuts down a show, and that's with the song Alive, the whole episode devoted to the song Alive. Um, but before we get into that, uh, please get on your platform of choice. Review rate would be lovely. A subscription would also be super awesome. Um, and you know, follow us in the social channels. That's always good. Have good conversations there on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, we figured, you know, me and Paul have lovely conversations by ourselves, but why not bring in someone who has really good conversations by himself so much that I want to read them all the time? And that is Stip from the Skyscrape Red Mosquito Forum. Hello, Stip. Hey guys, thanks for having me back. Excited to have you back. So here we are, Step. This uh, would you say that this is the most important song in the catalog? Is it's my favorite. It's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, it, it's my favorite. I think it's probably in the top three. If I gunned my head, if I had to pick a song that I was going to play for somebody to you know just to distill, this is what Pearl Jam is. I would probably pick Corduroy over Alive. I was Alive. just going to say Corduroy. <laughs> but I like Alive is my favorite song. I will say, I think I would agree with you maybe if we're talking about live versions, because the live version of Corduroy, generally speaking, is to me superior to the studio version. Whereas I think it's very different. It's very different. And I much, I personally much prefer the studio or the uh, live version. Whereas I think the, live version of Alive and the studio version could be quite similar and we might find um, some really good cuts of that later on in our live cut of the week but let's start at the beginning first single off of 10 how was it received guys it was received well but you know in a lot of ways I I think when you when you look back I mean look my dad was a huge classic rock fan growing up and that was his era and uh you know 70s rock emerged into that whole hairband you know metal era and and he he felt head over heels for that stuff too and, and ironically yeah exactly i mean kiss was like one of his favorite bands so you start hearing this sound out of seattle coming out and i remember him having the album 10 and i said oh this is interesting like what do you like this band I, I, I was already into him at that point. And he goes, eh, that song Alive's all right. Yeah, it's a pretty good song. <laughs> it's just that that song was kind of like a gateway in, into that. Oh, I, that's the wrong word. It was very much like a bridge between that mm. classic rock influence and where the band's sound was evolving into. And, I, and I, I've always found that particular song to be uh, very rooted in something much bigger than that, the sludge factory sound that you heard coming out of bands back then as well and you had when it, when it came out obviously the the b side was washed which is great but it the band didn't take off like it did when when jeremy came out about a year later 
So I, the reason why I asked the question was it was received well, but it didn't. Well, it was anthemic. It had that big, you sure, know. Of course, of course. Well, there course. was, you know, it, it sort of had two receptions because if I if I recall, and this is me trying to recall history because I did not become a fan until probably around Jeremy. Um, so I, I missed the the yes. initial window, but I th- it came out before ten, and I think Alive probably had two receptions. Um, I don't know how much of an impact it made when it first came out. Um, I, I, I couldn't say. And then it was, I think, rediscovered when Pearl Jam broke big after Nirvana sort of kicked the yeah. the doors down. And then people went back and Alive was still one of the singles. It had a video. People went back and revisited it. But I suspect it probably had a, a second life, a second rediscovery once um, people went back to Pearl Jam or just started looking for anything. Well, MTV out of just said, oh, well, we got to yeah. start playing this a little bit more. Right. The, these guys. <laughs> So it, it comes out, you have, it has the second rebirth, as you said, but they're playing it like kind of mid set a lot at the time. It wasn't, it hadn't really found its footing as like the obvious show closer kind of thing. Like sometimes you'll have bands, even, even new bands that like the lead single um, will easily all of a sudden become like, okay, we're obviously gonna, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you would, maybe you would think that Jeremy would be that closer because that was the stratosphere song. That was the next bump song the following summer. And they didn't do that either. And that was that was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, usually you'd think that they would just go that route, but they, they kind of stuck to meh, whatever we want to do kind of thing. It was porch a lot, wasn't it? I mean, maybe yeah. I'm just thinking of some of like the the more famous shows, the the unplugged, the um that what was the the, the big festival with hundred thousand people in Holland, which one was that? Ping Pong. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. You know, uh, where they, they closed with porch, you know, which is them just then taking this three minute, you right. know, like the, the the briefest song on the album and then just sort of blowing that out. You know, it could be what Every song on 10, you know, is anthematic, you know, like even like the, the quietest moments, like, you know, garden or, or oceans are. And so, you know, un- until a live starts to resonate with people and take on a, a life of its own, especially like, you know, um, in a live set and, and, you know, that changes over time, like what the song means and how the fans interact with it and the role it plays in a show. Um, I mean, you could close, you could, any song on 10 could close. Yeah. Uh, especially early on. When do you think the change started happening with that song where it started to gain some sort of traction as... I think it's maybe, when Josh turned the lights on. That, that was even flow video, <laughs> wasn't it? I was. <laughs> Josh Taft. But um, that was it. Josh yeah. turned the lights on and then everybody was like, all right, this wasn't, is band. That was the same session though, wasn't it? That was the same show they, they did both? They recorded It both. was. I mean, it must have been. How many yeah. how many video rigs were they going to bring out for you know like not, a, not after Josh a, a nothing band? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, <laughs> 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 um, you know, it's I was I was thinking about that uh, a little bit before we we came on, and you know, early on, like the earlier show. Actually, I think one of the ways you can sort of track this is actually with the with one of the lyrics. Um, you know, the early performances of of Alive, like like all of the earlier performances you know eddie as a, a front man is still very insular you know he's very if you watch the videos the the live performances he's singing for himself even when he's in front of a hundred thousand people he's singing for himself and and the others are there and like you know there's the, the magical alchemy of his voice that he could be doing something that's so intensely personal for him and you somehow his voice somehow makes space for you in it but you know alive was for him all of the songs were for him and it's probably, you know, maybe around, you know, no code, which is, you know, and this tracks with the, 
the the lyrical progressions uh, where the songs cease to be about what is an intensely you know personal journey and reflection on his on his experiences and starts to become more about what can I share with other people like I've I've gone through this what am I able to give to others or what am I able to say about my own experiences that you can find uh, useful yeah it's the um, maturation process that happens when you turn thirty <laughs> exactly <laughs> and uh, he and so. At that point, the song opens up a bit, and you know, the very early you know uh, shows he sticks with the lyrics as written, and like the the last line he does is you know like the, in the chorus you know I'm still alive. Fairly early on, once they start playing regularly, it shifts to uh, you're still alive, uh, and it's around no code. I was um, thinking about this and just looking at some of the the versions I had on my computer that I could access easily. It's around 95, 96 that he changes to we're all still alive or some variant on that at, at the end. And that's probably the pivot. I mean, the, the real transformation is at whatever point the, um, like the, fist, the fist pumping starts oh, right, yeah. in terms of uh, just the audience reception of it, not necessarily what it means to the band. I don't know when that is because the bootlegs never capture that. Right. My first memory of it is probably 98, but I, I, you know, Stip, first, I, I, I think when, when you can hear the crowd saying, Hey, yeah, hey, that's probably the fist pump. You know what if I mean? You go that, back that, and watch to your point. If you go back and watch pink Pop 92, um, that does exist and, and that and it, early. Okay. Yeah. And, and it, it feels like, it feels like, um, it was one of the first times that that was happening. And he says in that show, um, that's June of 92 that, you know, we've ever played for a crowd this big before uh-huh. because that whole tour, uh, I think up until Jeremy, so that's summer of 92, really, they've been playing a lot of clubs, right? Because they still weren't massive yet. They were, they were getting some popularity, but it was all kind of organic. And then once Jeremy hit and the video hit, all of a sudden now they're, now they're backing up big bands in, in massive amphitheaters and stadiums. And it's like, okay, all right. 93, 94, that they're doing their own thing in, in those same big stadiums. Um, so it felt like you were watching the infancy of the turn where people were saying, This, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily have the exact same story as the protagonist in this, which is clearly personal to Ed. And I think everyone got that, but there was a sense of overcoming a really negative situation. We did a, a retracking as we do uh, from time to time on this show uh, of 10 this month. It's, it was a wonderful challenge um, to try and come up with a new track listing of this album. And I actually started mine with Alive. I started it with Mama Sin Trilogy, but I started it with Alive because I thought it was a great um, kind of uh, microcosm of what I felt the album could be something really shitty happening to somebody they internalize it but they have to find a way to overcome and 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 you know become alive or or remain alive whatever it is i think this is the start is around there and i think you're right when it gets to 95 96 into the yield tour when they've had that personal journey of like hey there's the birth of no hey there's the whole ticketmaster thing let's do this shit on our own let's go to las cruces and play in cornfields you know, this well, there's also the, the the near implosion of the band during those no code sessions. Exactly, and, and, exactly. Uh, so you, they come out of that. Uh, Jack Irons, quote unquote, saves them. And it's like, wh- where in that little gully did that you know I'm still alive, you're still alive, we're still alive thing kind of go? And it kind of builds right, and it builds towards the the end of the decade. 
Um, do we think that there was maybe, I think there's two halves to the, to the alive story where you go kind of up until the end of the decade. Um, and I think you, you mentioned 98 step. I, I would imagine you're, you're probably referencing uh, maybe Hartford, New York, um, maybe Randall's. I own the Randall's. I was 96. Um, I was 96. Yeah. But those, there was, there was like a boiling point with the crowds. And I wonder if that was the, the end, the, the crescendo of the first wave before, of course, Roskilde. So uh, how, how would you measure that, that rise and how it changed? I mean, I, I can, you know, speak to, you know, for myself, um, Alive was not that important a song for me until mm. those live experiences. Um, I mean, I can, I can the, the day it became, well, so Alive was a good song on 10, which was a, you know, a really good, a really good album. Um, but I was, for a long time, I was into Vitology and Versus more. You know, and 10 was the, like, every time a new album came out, like, well, I wonder if it's going to be better than 10. 10 was the, the place where things could have... It was a litmus test. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, I, you know, I don't know where Alive would have ranked amongst the 10 songs. I always liked it. It was a really good song, but it was a good song in a sea of good songs. And it was probably one of those 98 shows, like, you know, MSG or something like that. And, you know, that experience being in that crowd with those other people and, like, you know, during the... The outro was, you know, I had that like, holy shit, this is, this is, has moved from a song to an experience in a way that probably no other Pearl Jam song did where I, I every time the, to this day that I, I hear alive and you get to the end of the song, like that is exactly where I go is to the being there, you know, in that sea of people during that, you know, cathartic moment. Now you pointed out Jason earlier, it's, it's towards the end of a show. So you've gone through that shared experience with the band and with the people around you when you're exhausted. And so that, I, I think that's when it starts to change for me. Certainly. I, I think as those experiences became more common with, with fans at the shows, I think the song probably took on more importance for the, the band. I mean, if, you know, today a song like alive is, you know, every bit as important as like a given to fly or a corduroy or something like that as part of the the live experience. Or and and you know, it's the show the band closed out the you know the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame introduction with, um, even though it was never their biggest hit. And that's because of that that live relationship. It was the and this I think is just me, but then the the rearview mirror remix that Brendan O'Brien did, mm. which has a a clarity and. Uh, a hugeness that the uh, the ten ver- w- without losing any of that clarity or sharpness. It's not just like big. It's it's intense in a way that the the ten studio cut, the original one, maybe isn't. That captured that the feel of what it's like to listen to a live in a room full of fifteen twenty thousand people. Yeah. Um, and you know after that experience changes maybe a little bit on a tour like binaural where that's a complicated tour and a complicated album and a, you know, a, a difficult headspace that they're in. But then when you get to something like the, the O three tour where it's not only just sort of healing from the, you know, uh, the experiences from the you know, Roskill and the binaural tour, but just the, the politics of the moment mm-hmm. and just 
finding solidarity in the shared experience of music where a live moves from even just beyond what is a shared experience to what is just a, a, a pure celebration, just like an, an affirmation of, of music and being there. Yeah. And it's, it's never looked back from, from that moment. I agree. There definitely is a transfer from that intense, personal, insular delivery of the song to that solidarity found in the shared experience of affirmation. I think what we really see happening is, is the band really, it, they, there was a shift in perspective from five against one to we are all one. And it was the embracing of that idea that we are all one as opposed to we are five against one that I think that that's where we started to see that, that transfer of, of the song and that energy into the crowd. And then almost in a cyclical fashion back to the band. And now it almost becomes this carousel or, or this um, like a water cycle almost, you know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. There's something prophetic about it too, which is, is cool because the, like what you just said, like the, this shift from the, the five against one to the, you know, all of us in it together, you know, the, from the beginning, you know, the music was always searching for that. Like it was something that was aspirational. Um, you know, right from right from jump, you know, this is where we want to get to someday. And we believe that we can if we keep looking to the the recognition that we we have it and we're going to celebrate that and we're going to live in that space. Like we, we've arrived, like, you know, we've we've we're all still, you know, alive together. And that's something to you know, it's not something to to question. It's not something to second guess. It's something to to celebrate. I mean, there's you know, the way in which. Pearl Jam concerts now are, they're not a party band in that, you know, it's like, oh, let's just, you know, get drunk and listen to music together. But the, the revival quality maybe that, that the shows have, you know, like you see that in the transformation of Alive over time and Alive in a lot of ways is just the perfect encapsulation of what that's supposed to be. Yeah. Why do you guys think that Alive, of all the songs that, that can get people to bond, I, I always talk about how, especially the songs on 10 were the band listening to you by playing at you. Um, how, why, why, why is it that alive is the song? Why isn't another song, the song to do that? Oh, well, I mean, I think the, the opening riff has a lot to do with it. I mean, there's no other song on 10 that really opens in a way that's as magnetic as that. I mean, garden, and release have that kind of to, to use your words jason that kind of droning intro feel to it but all the other songs just either hit you in the mouth or have that that kind of uh reverb style you know just just kind of trickle in effect um there's something or, or, in, or in the case of oceans or why go it's just it, it's a very it's a vocal lead or, or just a heavy drum and there was there, there was that big lead guitar sounding intro with alive and, and i feel that it, it it encapsulated rock and roll in a way that no other song on 10 does and when i say rock and roll i don't mean what rock had become with that new era of music and that new sound which i think was really personified with with what you heard out of kind of early alice in chains screaming trees mm -hmm. um you know Soundgarden, nirvana album like bleach i'm talking more about that 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 bridge between classic seventies rock and how, Pearl Jam to me is the evolution of that era of, of Led Zeppelin, of um, Neil Young, 
you know, all those bands from the seventies, that, that, that type of sound. And that includes punk bands as well. Sure. It, it, it really, all of that kind of Pearl Jam seems to somehow encapsulate that evolution. Whereas I feel like those other bands were, were very much kind of something different than that. And, and I've always, I've always taken umbrage with, with grunge as a moniker for all those bands, because every single one of them sounds different. Mm-hmm. They, 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 it, it, this idea that it was a genre to me is just farcical, but alive just seems to in, embody something that no other song that they had done was able to do. And the closest thing that we ever get to it in the first three albums is, is probably dissident mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of the way a song opens like that. You know, there's, there's a clarity, there's a clarity to it. Um, you know, there, and it, you know, it's like a, it's a, it's like a searchlight, um, mm-hmm. you know, or a, a, good you know, analogy. A, a, a lighthouse. Yeah. It's a great analogy. You're saying it's, it's as musical as it is uh, lyrical. If you listen to 10, like for an album that I adore as much as I, I do. And like 10 has huge riffs. Most, a lot of the biggest hits in 10, the music kind of drops out and it really becomes secondary to whatever it is like Eddie is doing. Like, I've listened to Black or Jeremy how many thousands of times, yeah. but I don't know that I could like hum the, the musical verses of Black like once the song gets going. You know, it's I know it's there. I've heard it a million times, but it's, uh, you know, that's about what Eddie's doing or like, you know, Jeremy is, is the, you know, the baseline and then what, whatever, uh, you know, Eddie is doing in the song. Like you, every note in Alive is, is clear, you know, it's, it's distilled. It's got like you, I, I like that you put it at this, the top of your your remix, Jason, because it's got you know you could do a lot worse for an opening line for an album than the you know the first lyric in Alive, as a way to just kick everything well, off. I got a little story for you, yeah. And it might be Eddie's best performance on the record. It doesn't maybe have the the breakdown moments that um, uh, a Black or a Jeremy or a, or a release does. Release, like you know yeah. some some of those highs are are tough to beat. But in terms of just nailing every single line so purposefully, you know, capturing whatever the the mood is in the song of that that moment, the um, you know, the weird, you know, mix of confusion and hurt and betrayal and and questing and questioning and like stubborn defiance, like he, every lyric is almost you know perfectly invested. I would. Uh, I think that you you hit the nail on the head there, and I think that the reason why people might think that it's the first song he wrote with the band, or I should say, it's the first set of lyrics. And you think about where and when he was when those lyrics were being written down. You know, going surfing at all hours of the morning and being like hardly awake, and then coming back and writing down the lyrics. And of you know, he gets this tape of of it's a blank canvas of music, and the first thing he thinks to write down is this particular story. Of course, naturally he would then put in the best performance because to him, what story is more important? That's the first one that came out of him. He's going to probably sing it the most earnestly. So perhaps when you, when Paul brings up the music, it's, it's, it's also the vocal delivery in coupling that with the story that he's telling. Maybe that's why it's, the most powerful or the one that everyone's rallying around over the next 10 years. Do we think? Yeah, I, it's quite, quite possibly. Um, it's also got the, the best solo on the album <laughs> and, and uh, I, I think in the catalog it, it, um, and black and Jeremy, like most of the, the songs have, have every, every song on 10 ends well. 
Um, you know, like th- that that's a, an album where everything finishes out strong. But most of the songs, you know, I'm I'm running through stuff in my in my head right now. Really, like even flow alive and alive are maybe the only songs that really definitively end rather than just kind of peter out into to fades, at least amongst like the real standout tracks. And I think that that helps too. Like um, Alive stops. Uh, I don't know if that, maybe that doesn't make a difference, but it, it completes a thought like in the Porsche. way that the others, the others don't. Porch, I mean, Porch is, a, I mean, Porch is my second favorite song on the album, uh, <laughs> but that's, uh, and, and, you know, maybe that's why, but, <laughs> uh, but Porch, Porch was also just not the single, you know, Porch yeah. never had the chance to, uh, you know, to be considered alongside the others just because it didn't have the, the radio play. It had the great unplugged performance. So, I mean, that counts mm-hmm. for something. So we see, we can see the, even, even as young people, and I'm going to say young people because we were what in our early to late teens in, in, in this, in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I think I was, I was 10 when I heard Jeremy on the radio in 92. So that, that yeah, places like me. 15. Yeah. So we're all kind of in a similar, 14. um, very, mm-hmm. um, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, easily, um, impressionable. impressionable is the word I'm looking yeah. for. Um, and we can see as we, as we discover more music, we can see what we really like and we can see how songs might evolve. And as we see a song that we really like evolve throughout the, throughout the decade, and then we get to Roskilde and, you know, you met, you kind of alluded to it earlier about the challenges of that in the, in the tour and then the, the change um, in tone with, with the O3 right act tour and of the politics of the time. What is it about Roskilde? I mean, did that really force an issue that was already coming sooner or did it markedly change the direction of that song? I think it was an existential crisis for the band. I, I think that, uh, you know, there was something about seeing Pearl Jam live that it was forever changed. There was a sensitivity and a, a level of caution in Eddie that had been awakened. Um, to the point where, uh, you know, he would see a level of activity in the crowd and it, it, it would, it would jar him. It would, it would, it, he was traumatized. I would imagine the, the whole band was. Yeah. How could you not be? Yeah. And, and it worked its way into, uh, in, into Riot Act for, for a reason. Um, and, and I think Alive was, you know, there was an extended period of time the song was not played live. That and summer it, and fall. Yeah. Exactly. So it wasn't until they finally played it again live that they realized that um, it, it, what's so beautiful about this is the tragedy that occurred. They were able to find a way to cope and find some level of, um, I don't want to call it redemption. That's the wrong word. Um, some level of peace. And, you know, Stitt mentioned this earlier, solidarity, a, a, a fidelity to the experience of music shared live. And for them to channel it through a song that they didn't want to play live anymore because of the painful memory associated with it, they were able to rediscover the song because of us. And when I say us, I don't mean three of us, but I mean just the yeah. live bass. The, 
the very entity that wanted that that made them want to make music in the first place they have all gone on record as saying we wanted to cut records so we could go play live right so so here they are they're playing live and for the first time in the band's career they were afraid to play a song the thing they loved doing most that made them want to make records there was a, there was a part of that that they were afraid to do that is that is trauma right there and so to 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 immerse yourself and tackle that fear head on um, instead of running away from it or avoiding it and to trust the audience and to say, we're going to play this tonight. I, I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how the crowd's going to receive it. I don't know how we're going to feel while we play it. And then to suddenly have this epiphany that there's a, 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 a path towards healing through playing the song live. Because it was through playing the song live that they didn't feel so alone anymore. They no longer felt that this was their, their pain, their burden to bear alone. And this is, this is why what I referenced when I meant five against one turned into all for one, you know, um, uh, or I should say uh, we are all one. Right. And it was that ability to kind of, you know, lean into that and find a connection with the crowd and now it, it as stip mentioned it became a song about the celebration of life and uh, in a lot of ways i think when they play the song that they find it almost obligatory as a way to honor those those nine lives stip do you think that any other this could be any other song and by what by that i mean when when the tragedy happened if it had been during a different song is there a scenario, because I think there is, where if it's not alive, let's say it's, I don't know, blood, do they ever play that song again? Is there so much, is there so much of a connection in a, in a, in a communal feeling around alive that that always had to be the song that was part of the tragedy that would redeem um, and bring everybody together on the backside? Um, I, I mean, maybe. I, I, blood is a great example. Like if it if it's blood, does um, it become it's our blood? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there's right? no way. There's no way that, that you could rehabilitate that. Like blood yeah. is just That's forever re forever retired. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe if if it was release, if it was you know. But they wouldn't uh, be moshing to that song or or, or causing. Well, okay. Well, that's that well, that, well that well that that's, that's true. why I bring up blood. Okay, that's true. Um, there aren't that many possibilities. Um. And you know, with Alive too, it it's it mattered too because Alive is a foundational track for them in a way that Blood Blood wouldn't be. It was also probably a song that was primed to be rethought as well, hmm. um, because the for a song that's as important as um, as it is, the original version of Alive, the original intent behind it. There's a specificity to it um, about you know, what it's about, the, the specific memory, uh, what he's working through, that at a certain point, you know, when you're, you know, pushing, uh, when you're in your mid-40s, you know, uh, and, and getting older, at a certain point, you have to have processed, you know, your, your older issues. You, you can't still be lingering in that space. And something like release, you could still keep playing because it's you know it's it's an an elegy to you know to, to somebody that you lost or something like like black that's 
about a universal feeling that transcends age or Jeremy that really is a particular story or porch that is really more about an experience or a feeling than, than any narrative. Um, you know, alive had to change to stay relevant and you can't artificially do that. Um, and, you know, they decide now this is just going to be our, you know, our party song or, you know, our, our celebration song, uh, not with the same kind of meeting. It's like everything that you guys had just described. It's, it's a song whose lyrical content, you know, works for the, the rehabilitation of that experience, the, the almost messianic quality that it can have, you know, as a, a song that, that saves, that, that can help you come through that experience and, you know, realize that, you know, even if music was a, a source of tragedy, it's also a source of, you know, strength and, you know, enduring endurance and, you know, can honor the legacy and memory of, of those people. So, I mean, that, that's just fortuitous that this is a song that could carry that weight, you know, where few others could have. Yeah. You know, we're, we're kind of uh, finding ourselves closer to what we would do as, as far as lyrics of the week, um, because you, you mentioned how specific a story is and how we can somehow you said a process. I mean, obviously, if you if you grow up, you're 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 going to get past that at some point. So, how does a song that has such a specific and dated, and I say dated because at a certain point we process it, um, theme that we almost it, we almost move past it in our minds. We're just waiting to get to the chorus. Like, how, how powerful is a song, and 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 I guess the overall theme that we can kind of bypass the verses in a sense. That just kind of blows my well, mind. Uh, we can do okay, that. so I, it, if you remove the song from the the Mama Song roots mm-hmm. it, it, and and Eddie's personal um, connection to it, if you just think about the song and the dichotomy of the song and each listener's relationship to it, meaning when you listen to a song like Alive, you do what we just did which is discuss how it made us feel when we were young. And I cannot help that when when you hear that song live now, or you talk about that song, it brings you back to a place that is filled with nostalgia. And despite the, the dark macabre thematic, you know, matter of the, of the, of the track itself and in its lyrical content, there is a level of sentimentality and, and wistful joy that I think, all Pearl Jam fans feel when they discuss this song or hear this song. And it doesn't matter what the song's about, quite frankly. It's just, it's, it's, it's part of that shared experience. You know, Andy Wood once said, music is the universal language. And I think that there's, there's something poignant about the musical um, quote, I guess, that is spoken by Alive, that when translated amongst Pearl Jam fans, is essentially the equivalent of a hug. Hmm. There's something, it, it, it extends and expands and transcends beyond the celebratory. And it very much is rooted in the, com- the communal. It, there's, there's something about a, um, God, the words evading me right now, but it's, it's just, it's a way that, that we connect as Pearl Jam fans. And, and it's, it's like a knowing glance 
but it's it's done through music. We don't have to talk about it. You just know. And there's a weird alive helps itself in that way because, and I, I think I said this the the last time I was I was on uh, your your show. Lyrically, I don't think alive is that great. Right, you um, did mention are, that. Yeah. There are some really striking lyrics again. Like you, you cannot do better than you know the the opening lyric to the the song and and what it you know portends, but. You know, he's he's writing about a very raw emotional experience, and that absolutely comes through in the performance. But but um, but expressing it in this almost jaded, abstract way that, that he, there's a difficulty in trying to articulate the experience. It, yeah, and he's there's also you know with the the Mamasan like trilogy, which I've, I've always thought actually diminishes each of the individual songs <laughs> if you try to tie them together. Yeah, you know, I feels like you know the work of a. Uh, a younger artist who yeah. thinks that this is really cool. And I, when I first learned that, I thought it was really cool when I was much younger. And now I kind of, you know, roll my eyes at it a little bit. Um, or like, maybe if I can link these things together narratively, I'm more likely to land the gig with the band. Um, maybe some of it is a defense mechanism because this is personal. I have to wrap it up in this weird incest story. That's only obliquely told. Like, you know, if, if that was, and I forget where I first learned that that's what he had said it was about. Um, I don't know where, where, I don't remember when that was first revealed, but you have to dig to find it in the lyrics. And because the lyrics are so nonspecific, you're able to read your own story into what they're doing. Um, you know, your own experience of loss, your own experience of betrayal, your own existential questioning of your own self-worth or the, the meaning of it all without the, the specific story getting in the way. If you look at something like, like Jeremy, which I think is a, a better written song lyrically, um, you know, Jeremy is, is, is weird these days because it's undergone a similar transformation to, you know, Alive. And, you know, like the, everybody you know, doing the woes at the end is this incredible communal experience that we really shouldn't be having. Right. Like, you know, Jeremy is a miserably depressing song and isn't... And, and it's specific enough that you can't really just overlook it. Like we do because just at that point we're celebra- uh, we're celebrating music that that we've that's been with us for thirty years now. Mm-hmm. But uh, it it works for Alive. If Eddie was the kind of writer that like Bruce Springsteen was, where like the songs are really going to be rich in you know details and scenery and you know have a more cinematic narrative quality to them. I don't know if you can rehabilitate alive the same way. I don't know that it strikes the same kind of chord that it does. It's there's the happy accident of the lyrics being vague enough and Eddie wanting to hide behind them that you can just get absorbed in the the clarity of the music, the intensity and the emotionality of the performance and read your own story and your own needs into it. What what's what's Eddie's most naked lyrics? Like personally naked? Yeah, Ooh, that's a good question. It, because this this is a song that's very uh, I, very personal. I, I, I think I think even it's though released, he kind of shrouds frankly, things, I think it's released. I, I yeah, I, I it's hard to think that it isn't, especially when you look at, at Pearl Jam twenty and you look at that performance, which for Eddie was was later. It, it's not a clip from the nineties, but you look at him singing those lyrics, and it's he he's. There's no, there's nothing vague about this. He is singing directly to his father, and, and it is a plea 
to be released from, mm -hmm. from that, you know, and uh, I, I can't imagine anything more painfully naked than that. Probably not. I mean, like that, that's the song that he didn't put the lyrics into 10 for. Like that's the one that mm. he's not hiding behind a character or behind hiding behind uh, a universal enough experience like oceans, like just missing, you know, somebody who's gone that, you know, you can, it, it doesn't have to be personal in the way that releases. Um, and he could have, you know, Alive could have had it, some of those confessional moments that are in release are in Alive, but they're hiding behind right. that story. Alive might have worked just as well if he really leaned into that in the way that, that you know, release does. Um, but because he hid behind the story, he's kind of lucky that it's not that great a story if what you are <laughs> doing is telling a story about an incest survivor. Uh, which there, I mean, there, there are probably, unfortunately, plenty of people that could sympathize with that. But at the same time, well, it's that, a tragic ending. I'll tell you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I'm saying the, it, maybe it was always a, a good luck charm that he did shroud it a bit because then you can put your own story in it to a degree. Whereas release, it's like you can't. It is what it is. But but right. luckily for the songwriter, everyone is going to experience that at some point. So it is more universal. Yeah. It's weird kind of how both work, both find the same end game, but by different ways. I question the intent. I, I'm not convinced that he penned these three songs with the intent of looping them together as one narrative. To me, I just think it was a, a confluence of events and he just noticed some things and decided. <laughs> it, it could be. And, and Alive, if Alive is just a story about the re and this is, you know, interestingly enough, why the, the song resonates the way it does. Probably, fortunately, the the incest interpretation is not widely known outside of the fandom, which is a good thing because it's not a great, it's not a, a <laughs> great. Uh, I think anybody listening song, to the show is going to understand that. That's no, 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 yeah. Look, yeah. if somebody has subscribed to a Pearl Jam podcast, they're going to they know. know. Yeah. But you know, the the larger the larger public, um, if. It, what they remember is that this is the song about, you know, Eddie finding out that he never knew, you know, his father. And if they stuck with that, I think it works much better as a lyric. There's some vague lines in the second verse that are kind of hard to parse. Yeah. But the, you know, the start, like the, you know, sit down, I have to tell you this, this world shattering event and the kind of diffident way that the song wraps up, you know, like, you know, well, I, t I told you, you know, suck it up. You'll be fine what's the big deal, uh, you know, get over it, you're still alive. And then the, 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 the narrator, the singer in the song trying to, to process, like, you know, what is anything if these foundational truths, like, you know, the, the, you know, and family is the rock that everything else is built on. You know, if, if I can't rely on that, I can't trust that. If, if that's a lie, you know, what else is a lie? And that ties in so nicely with the larger themes, you know, on that album of, um, people just constantly being let down by the people that they're supposed to be able to trust or right. the systems they're supposed to be able to trust and finding a way to endure. Like, Is there a song that, you know, we, we talk about the ending in the, in the solo and how, you know, nowadays it goes on for five minutes, which is awesome. Um, and you got the haze and the haze and the haze and um, uh, Pistoia 2006 always comes to mind when I, when I think of that. Um is there any song where the final chorus leads into an outro in such a way where it's like, 
the feeling of the last lyric is perfectly um, illustrated by the remainder of the song. Oh, this. black for sure. Oh, you I know someday yeah. you'll have a beautiful life. I know you'll be a star in somebody else's sky, but why can't it be mine? And fair, what, fair what Mike does after that yeah. is the angst ridden <laughs> wail of, mm-hmm. of, you know, the do 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 do's. No, Jeremy, too. There's a couple of them on 10 that can, I like Alive the best, but if somebody set, picked Jeremy or, or, or Porch or Black or Release, I wouldn't argue with them. And what Eddie did on 10 that stopped pretty soon after and is non existent now is he vamps over, you know, the music. And so you get the, you're brought back to the final lyrics in him because he's weaving in and out of whatever it is that Mike and the rest of the band are doing. Like, you know, there's the, some of the most powerful moments of alive are like the wordless vocalizations that, you know, they're like coming at you from a distance, you know, during the, the, the outro, the way, you know, he's moaning over the, the conclusion of the song to, to bring it all back to that person's experience. That's all over Jeremy. That's all over black, you know, even more so in those two songs. Um, it's it's throughout the you know the the really frantic conclusion to porch. If there's one thing I miss from from ten that they didn't really carry forward, and I'm, you know even on you know verses, which is just a year later, you know, there's much much less of that. Uh, I think that's something that that's lost. Uh, and that's why all of the outros on 10 are so good. They, besides just letting them all play out that he's interacting with the music in a way that he stopped. One thing I'll say about black Paul is I think black and alive are the, are the two songs and Jeremy's right there at like a, at like a two, but like a one A and one B would be black and alive as far as how the final lyric interacts with the outro. The difference is that black is a, it's a, the audience and the band are coming together to commiserate something negative. Whereas I think alive, it's the reverse. We're coming together to heal and celebrate. I agree. Perhaps that might be the difference. Why alive happens to be the show closer nine times out of 10. I mean, you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to end a a, a set with this soul crushing. (laughs) Right, right, right. Not that, yeah, they're both equally powerful, but like, maybe that's why the uplifting ending. That's why, that's why Mm -hmm. I said, you know, I'm still alive. And then you've just got a four chord thing going for two and a half minutes and just Mike just, you know, let's just just end with unrequited longing. (laughs) Send them all in the car. (laughs) No. and, And there's something that's so comforting about the ending to alive. Whereas like, you know, he, you know, ends, you know, ends the song lyrically, you know, with the, the question, you know, do I deserve to be like who answers? And the solo has that, like that comforting, you know what, at some point we will figure it out. Yeah. Uh, but we do. You know, we do. We, and we, we do. Because when we, when we, when we hear this live, who answers, we do. We do. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's such a beautiful uh, cyclical you know, circle of life of a track. It really is such an amazing phenomenon. And that it's not to take anything away from black. Black is just not set up to do that. That's not no, the kind of not. song black is trying to be. Um, I agree. It's, it's uh, good. It, it, indifference is really, you know, it's a much chiller song, um, but it's, all, it up. <laughs> it, it's also doing something <laughs> fairly similar. And that's another one that's, that's mm-hmm. really through the live experience. It answers its own question. 
in the way that a live does. How much difference well. does it make? Also, yeah. I think that's that's the that's the I think closest comparison to what would a show sound like if Black closed it is when Indifference closes it, and you're left like, oh man, that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> I think they do it more musically than than them- thematically, but that's why you close with with a song like Alive. I mean, Yellow Better aside, uh, or Rocking in the Free World again, the uplifting rocker, right? right? But there's just something about how those final lyrics go into that outro and we all find to your point, Paul, um, ourselves, uh, arm in arm. Um, and it's never a main set close. It's an encore. Like, it, you know, there was a period with Ben Harper where you could finish a show with indifference, mm-hmm. but, but there, there was that sense of now nah, we got to come back out for three or four yeah. more and we got to end on rocking in the free world or we got to end on, on uh-huh. alive or something, you know, led better. Hmm. Yeah, and again, it's it's that we're 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 ending together. You know what I mean? We're going to end a show with a feeling of togetherness, and, and I don't think that you're going to see, it, especially now. I mean, w- when they go down to Dana Point, I was just going to say after this long, yeah, there's no chance that they end with something other than I would imagine this song. Just I I can't fathom it. They they might. It will be the it, one of the final two or three songs. They might throw something like "Lead Better" in as a cool down because the problem with ending a show on a live is that that's that's too much of a high. Like you have to have you, you have to have some kind uh, of well, Jason cool and I might need effort. it for the ride home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or, well, you know, fair, fair enough. Uh, can, let me ask you guys a question, if you don't mind. Yeah, you know, there's there's five. I I, I counted. There's five studio versions of a live. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's the. I can think of three. What would be the? Four? So there, there's. This is the demo the, version? I'm not even counting the demos okay. or like the, oh. or the or the the rough mixes. Um, there's the there's the original ten version. Mm-hmm. There's the Brendan O'Brien remix. Mm-hmm. I'm not going in order. There's the version that appeared on the Greatest the ten. The, the, what? That was the one stuff. I meant. By, I'm sorry. That was the one I meant by the remix. Great, uh, okay. There's there's the rearview mirror remix. There's the uh-huh. ten reissue remix. They're both Brendan O'Brien, but they're different. There's also the version in the video. It's a different version of the song. It's it's none of those. Is that a that's a live in studio, similar to the Even Flow version, right? Live in studio well, kind of thing. I maybe I don't know what it's from because it's not. There's, there's no su- overdubs. It, it's just it's the band playing it live together in a studio, without any kind of obviously audience. Is Eddie Eddie's not overdubbed? Oh, that's interesting. Is that what it is? They, they might uh, overdub cool. some vocals, but you're probably going to get, I believe, no other guitar overdubs, which is why Even Flow sounds so interesting on that 04 remix, which I know Paul really loves, and it's just a really cool version of that. So that's four. What's the fifth? Well, there's a, there's an, an obscure version. I have it in my, my iTunes. It's listed as... Let's see if I can find this. And this is just what the track title is. I never, re- I never renamed it. Um, it's, oh, where is this? Hold on. This is the best part of the show. Yeah. Like to watch somebody sc- scan, their, <laughs> scan their computer. Here it is. It's, it says one dash one alive space ZSK dash four Oh four one. So it was some, it, it's, a, it's an absolute studio track. Huh. And it feels like the 10 version, except when you get to the solo, it's actually much more akin to the solo Mike plays live that's sort of in rhythm with the fist pumping. Because, uh, you know, because like Mike's standard solo, at least right. just once the, the crowd gets engaged, is not what he's playing on 10, but it's actually what he's playing on this version. 
Um, so I, so I, it, this is your preferred version, I would imagine. No, no, it's it's actually not uh, oh. because uh, <laughs> because without the crowd actually being there, it's like the my favorite version is the the rearview mirror remix. Oh. Okay. Um, uh, so that that's you know it probably should be given everything else I had just said. Um, I, I like the Review Mirror remix one better. Actually, this is probably one of my least favorite of them because huh. as a standalone solo, if you don't have the the added prop of you know ten to twenty thousand people screaming along, you're not there doing it yourself. It's not as good as as what yeah. we got on ten. I don't know if it's I don't know what the track's history. I'm not enough of a, a band historian. I don't know if that was if an original version. Is- I, you know, get some of those people from, from, uh, you know, two feet thick or something like that. <laughs> I'm a, whatever meant a, the space that I put into like thinking about the lyrics and stuff like that, or the, the mental energy is what some other people, uh, do with uh, other band trivia and, and history. Like I, there are definitely people who know far more about Pearl Jam than I do without question, including almost certainly the two of you. Um, have yeah. you never heard this? I can, I can email it to you. I don't know how Please do. this yeah. is. Send it over. Uh, Send it over. I'm, I'm curious. Well, I think we've gotten to, I think we've actually gone through the whole history of the song here. Um, well, you guys didn't actually answer my question, though. Oh, sorry. Uh, which, 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 which one of those is your favorite? Well, I haven't heard the last one. so oh, Fair enough. So bracketing, bra- fair enough. Bracketing that one. Um, I, chose, I chose the Redux version over the original Rick Parasha version. I think we both did. In, in yeah, because it, it's yeah. more direct, although they're very similar. The, the 10 version or the rear view mirror? The, the 10, uh, the 10 remix version. I don't remember the Raven Mirror version off the top of my head. I'm going to go and listen to it as soon as we're done, and I'll get back to you. I think it's better, and that's the one that he released first. And so I, I think I like, is better off of that than the than the original. I, I, I think Black is too. Um, Jeremy, uh, <laughs> I like, I like all, reverb. I like all three of those more, and I like all three of those more than the versions that ended up on the ten reissue. Yeah. And it, maybe that makes sense because maybe. I, Brandon O'Brien used his best remix ideas on Rearview Mirror and then had to go back and do something new. Uh, yeah, well, that's, 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 that's a good argument. The other way. <laughs> All right, well, we've, we've combed through the entire history of the song. It, it, it's, it's the quintessential... I'm going I'm to call it the quintessential Pearl Jam song for all the reasons we have, we have laid out here. Sure. Let's go ahead and find the best live version with our live cut of the week. Ready? Step. You both know the rules. Well, Paul, of course, because he made the rules. Has to be from the time period, right? It should have a great performance, but it has to have equally great uh, audio quality. So where and when are we going, Paul? September 20, 1992. Stip said 10 to 20,000 people. How about 30,000 people? Magnuson mm-hmm. Park. Uh, look, you're not going to find a lot of Pearl Jam shows where you can go onto eBay. And you can literally find a laminated pass that's selling for $700 from this show. Oh, no shit. Wow. And that, and that's the, um, the, the level of nostalgia that I was talking about. And, and this particular show, in, partic- in particular, I, I, apologies for the redundancy there, but what I think makes this version so magnetic, so effective, is the context of a band on the road performing all over the world and coming back home, being utterly exhausted and realizing what have we just become? 
you know, we talk about the existential crisis that, that awaits them in no code, but think about that. I mean, you went from, I just want to make music so I can, I can play live to I'm standing on a stage in front of 30,000 people in our hometown. I mean, this was, you know, if there was ever a moment that I think they, they realized they had literally reached that, that level of supernova, it had to be this moment. If not this, then, then Pink Pop. But there was something about weathering all of that and then being home and that, that concept of we're still alive. There's something about, to me, this is where the, that, this song is born as a live cut and uh i don't know i just i i love the the narrative of it here in this place played at home after that tour it's, it's just the best version i think from this era well i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, kind of uh, piggyback off you as to why i think you're right right after we listen to it and then i'll get stip's uh, opinion as well so uh, let's go do magazine park in seattle september 20th 1992 so did it feel like a free show that's what i want to know We hope it was all right. So all of your efforts and all your sore legs, it's all appreciated. We don't take any of it for granted. All right, play a stone.
I'm going to say the reason why, if you recall, in our episode, oh, I don't know how many months ago, the birth of no was but maybe 10 days prior. And this was the homecoming. Obviously, uh, and obviously, but there is a video on YouTube that you can find. It's like a camcorder video of some dude walking around um, that park, not not Magazine, but it has the one that the the, the gas work thing, um, and he's walking around. And just talking to people and he finds Eddie just walking around with a buddy and they're just talking to him like, well, hey, you guys were going to do a show. What happened? And, and Eddie's like, oh, yeah, we had to postpone it because, you know, there was too many people that responded with, to the ticket. It was a free show. And, you know, we couldn't get clearance from the city, blah, 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 blah. So we got to postpone it. So that sucks. So maybe we'll do, you know, we'll have to do it in the fall, hopefully. So you've got you've, that, that was like in May or June of that year. Right. And then they go and do Pink Pop their first big audience. They have that whole summer. Jeremy blows up. They're in the mega stratosphere. All of a sudden they do the singles premiere. That's a clusterfuck. They got onto Irvine, the first show after that. And they're like, fuck that. We're never doing any TV shit again. They, they they've turned in Irvine, California, and they go back up and they finish where they were going to play months earlier. And they closed out this mad magnificent tour. They did in front of, as you said, 30,000 of their closest friends for free. This is what you get. 
And I want to ask Stip, you know, even if this isn't your favorite, you know, how, how would your other favorites hold up to this and why are they wrong? <laughs> uh, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't going to be my answer, but I like your answer better. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I, I can, I was going to, I was going to pick the unplugged, which great version. It's, it's a great version. And the reason I was going to pick the unplugged is it, a, it's different. And mm-hmm. the thing about alive is, is a song, you know, especially in this period, they, they consistently nail. Um, and so it's, Hard, it, the fact that uh, the unplugged is just so different helps me differentiate it from the others. And that's um, fair. It's because this this your textbook a live version of a live for me has become so utterly bound up with that the actual experience of being there that the the live versions that are just that are pretty straight almost lose something for me because I, I am so cognizant of what's not there. And that is not the fault of the song. That is entirely <laughs> on me and, and my own issues. Uh, and, and you picked a great one and there's absolutely, you told a better story there than I, I could tell about um, the unplugged. What I really did like about the unplugged is it, it was at that point where they were, they're breaking, you know. They're doing this this show. They're big enough to to get the to get the unplugged gig, um, but they're not so big that there, there was a, there was a review I read once of Yield that was talking about how there hadn't ever been a band before Pearl Jam that was so shackled to a particular image of what their sound was supposed to be like, you know that that Pearl Jam was, which I thought was really insightful at the time. Not that it's no less insightful now. It's I think it's just less true. Um, and unplugged was one of those moments where they were becoming really big, but they could still completely change, you know, the you know their songs around, or do, even though they're fairly conventional, just acoustic performances, they could be different. There was um, a range there that you didn't know that yeah, existed. That, yeah. That, yeah, you didn't know existed, and that they could experiment with safely, even on live TV. That they, they uh, that they had the confidence to try. And didn't feel hemmed into the point that they couldn't, and they got back to that place again. But that's part of the story of Vitology and No Code, and mm-hmm. and eventually Yield is 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 that story. But I, your answer is better, uh, <laughs> unquestionably. I, I'm, I'm changing. I'm changing my vote. <laughs> well, before we before we say goodbye to the ten month to this episode to you, Step, um, just some honorable mentions of over the years, just things that maybe have stuck out to you. Uh, versions. I mentioned Pistoia, uh, Italy, 06. That always stands out to me really well because mostly because of the uh, Imagine and Cornice video um, film. Is there anything that kind of pops out to you guys? Um, that, that sticks well, the, the show memory? we saw here, Jason. Which one? Well, we were literally oh, to, uh, 20 feet away from the stage. I mean, <laughs> it's, it just it, it, for, for precisely what Stip was just talking about the ability to turn around. Mm-hmm. and see those fists in a sea of hands just all in unison at once that to me was that visual accompaniment that i needed mm-hmm. and it was it was i, I have to tell you the perspective because you can't get that from the rafters i mean you you see it but it's more of it's a, there's something about seeing it behind you within it you know what i mean to be within it and to have it behind you and and that that level of support being backed by that mm-hmm. And then 
to feel what it felt like to the band, to be able to turn around and see what the band sees. That to me uh, is something that I can't separate myself from. So whenever I hear this song live on any bootleg, and we 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 hear that moment at the end that 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 uh, you know, mm-hmm. that that's that's the 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 memory that gets jogged. Step, what do you got? Anything? Any honorable mentions from over the years? It's it's whichever one I've been at, and and it's ah, it's yeah. for exact it's for exactly that reason. Like alive more than any other song is bound to the experience of being there, yeah. uh, rather than the actual performance of the song itself. Almost any other song I could have told you this is my. One of my favorite versions of porch like i know my definitive even flow is um alive is it was the shows that i was at because um not because they're the best but because they're the ones that can most readily take me back there yeah makes sense well gang there you go that's the episode um that, that's the month of 10 and uh we'll just go through lightning bolt next week no big deal no i'm just kidding <laughs> um nothing against lightning bolt but, somebody, uh, somebody needs to stick up for Lightning Bolt. Yeah, yeah. come on. Um, I love that album. We really appreciate you guys listening, well, at all, but especially this yeah. month as we celebrate um, <laughs> 10. And, and I know we've given a lot of attention to 10 and for very obvious and good reasons. Um, I think we should obviously give a little tip of the cap to No Code, 25th anniversary for that. Uh, if you haven't watched it already, uh, this past weekend was the free stream of Moline, Illinois, yep. from 2014. Got the whole show. Or I'm sorry, got the whole No Code album. So check that out if you haven't already. And uh, I think we'll hit some No Code stuff in September to uh, make sure we don't um, we don't uh, ignore that too much. But um, thanks to Step for coming on again. Absolutely, my, my pleasure. Anytime, uh, Paul. Any last words? Well, I think the the, the only thing left to say is. We're all still alive, and in the in the uh, the age of COVID, that is meaningful. And you know what, gang? <laughs> it, um, the T-shirts are being ordered, and you're going to oh, see boy. Paul and me in the shirts in in weeks on the shore in California. So until we see you then, but probably before then on the podcast, you've been listening to the State of Love and Trust. Yeah.